So this, um, this lengthy passage in John, it's a very line-in-the-sand sort of passage. It's often read and used that way, pieces of it. And to be frank, it's, it scares me sometimes. This passage scares me. Um, because I'm the kind of person, if you tell me there's only one way to do something, I immediately start thinking about other ways to do that thing. And I've been blessed with a four-year-old boy who thinks the same way. No, Benjamin, don't do that. You're going to fall down. And then the next moment I look at him and he's like, I got it. He, he grabbed, he climbed up there and he got the thing. I told him he couldn't do it. He'd fall down and he, he proved me wrong. Um, this might have had to do with the dad I grew up with. My dad, we would be sitting at the dinner table and he would say things like this to, to me and my brothers, be eating, and he'd just say, all you boys are going to college and I'm not paying for it. That, that was his college talk. Like that was, that was his academics, help with loans, all those things rolled into those two sentences. You're going to college and I'm not paying for it. And you know what I thought? I'm not going to college, I'm not doing that. It was a, a miracle, a miracle that me and my younger brothers all graduated from college. I even went on to get a master's degree. But my 16-year-old, 15-year-old self hearing that, I was like, no way, I'm not doing that. You say it's this way, I say there are other ways to do this thing called life. And that's the world that we live in. We live in a world, we live in a culture and a society that approaches life from so many different ways. We have a plurality of voices, of religions, of ideologies, of philosophies. We live in a democracy. And these are not bad things. But when we hear a passage like this, where this religious leader, Jesus, he says that he is the door, he is the way, that everybody else are thieves and robbers who only come to kill and to steal and destroy. Those are offensive words to our culture and our society. And sometimes, if I'm being honest, I get a little bit embarrassed because of that, because of Jesus' words. Why do you have to say it just so harshly like that? So, what I want us to do for the next few minutes together is explore some ideas around this passage, the first one being exclusivity. Are Jesus' claims here exclusive? Is, is his purpose and his desire and his, his intent rather intentionally or unintentionally to keep people out? And then the believability of Jesus, of uh, even this book that we're looking into right here, the book of John, because this man, this man from 2,000 years ago who grew up in a, a backwater town of Nazareth and Palestine claimed to be God. And some people wrote that down. And so we're going to talk about the believability of that. We're going to talk about, though, also the believability in our hearts. When we hear that shepherd's voice, how do we respond? And whose voice is it that we are believing? And then lastly, I hope that we can end with a sense of comfort. A sense of comfort in seeing how Jesus indeed is the good shepherd. 
even as we consider these other difficult ideas of exclusivity and believability. So let's get started. Let's go back to the first couple of verses. Let's read those together. Um, You in your Bible, me and mine here, I'll read out loud. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is, again, he's making these bold claims that there is one way into this metaphor that he's talking about, this way into the the sheepfold and the sheep pen, and that's where abundant life lies. That's where salvation lies. And he calls all these other spiritual leaders thieves and robbers. This is... um, Again, not, not a new idea to Jews, to, to Israelite people. They would be familiar with these terms in Scripture. Uh, one in particular that references this idea of uh, shepherds and shepherds of God, God's people, we find in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 34. And I'm going to have a few verses up here for you to see this idea of these shepherds who are not doing their jobs, who are really more of thieves and and robbers of sorts. In Ezekiel chapter uh, 34, verse 4 through 6, he says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Jesus, or the prophet Ezekiel here, is preferring referring to the religious leaders of the day, the people who are supposed to keep watch and take care of and protect and heal and guard those people. When we listen to that passage, do you think of any other leaders, religious or otherwise, that you would have that type of complaint about? That they promised one thing, and yet they did another. They said they were for us, but when the chips really were down, where were they? They abandoned us. Jesus is referring to these different groups of people that claim to want what's good for us and want what's best for us. But you say, but Jamin, I'm a modern, sensible person. I understand that when it comes to the Jewish leaders and we read in the Old Testament and it's clear. But there are these other folks, these other religious gurus, these self-help people. There's Oprah, for the love of God. There's Oprah. How could you say Oprah is a thief or a robber? She's always giving people stuff. Come on, Jesus. I mean, you're calling Oprah like, you get one and you get one. That lady. But there is an idea here that whatever these folks can offer 
there is something different about what Jesus offers. That, in fact, if we investigate closely the claims of these various religious leaders, because we say, well, all religions will lead to God or the divine or things like that. But the burdens that these religious ideas put on us so often, they say, yes, you can get to God, but you've got to do it yourself. I can be your shepherd up to a point, but eventually what has to get you there is your ability to meditate, the level of your morality, your observance of as many possible gods and deities as you can. And ultimately God will stand and he will weigh you in another religion, weigh your deeds, right and wrong. And if you've done enough good, you will get there. You will make it. If you're a bad person, if your bad deeds outweigh your good, you won't. Jesus says this way of thinking, this way of leading people is as if to get to abundant life, they are sneaking around and trying to find another way in. But there's so much fear in this for so many of us to say to somebody, whatever you're doing, it's not the right thing. It's, it's, it's not the right way to go about being pleasing to God. Let me tell you a little bit, give you a little context about John's church that, that he's writing to. This is a Jewish community of believers. So many of you know and are familiar with that, that most of the earliest believers in Jesus were Jewish people. And there was no distinction, there was no idea of a Christian versus a Jew at this time in history. There were Jews who were coming to the knowledge that Jesus was the Messiah and that they could believe in him and that was the fulfillment of what they were waiting for, the, the final destination of the religion of Judaism. And so these Jewish people, they were continuing to go to um, their um, temple, their, um, their, uh, why can't I think of the word right now? One person, give me it. One, who said it? Synagogue, yes, synagogue. It's been a long weekend. <laughs> their synagogue, and they were worshiping Jesus, but as time passed on, a rift grew, because you had a group of people saying, this Jewish religious leader is the only way to God ultimately and finally. And the Jewish people who did not believe that had a big problem with that. And so eventually what happened to those Jewish people is they were cast out of the synagogue. They were banned from everything in their life that made sense. Their whole world was formed around their understanding of synagogue, of the Torah, of all of these ideas, and they were cast out from that fellowship. 
And so John has this group of believers and he's, he's, he has them huddled together and they're meeting in homes in this urban center. We don't know quite which city they were in. And he is having to constantly comfort them and constantly point them and show them back to the way that they had first believed, that yes, indeed, that Jesus is the good shepherd, that it's true, that he is the door. You have not misplaced your trust in believing him. And in that context, we read those words. These men were thieves and robbers because what John knew, and the same thing that Jesus knew, is our hearts are incredibly religious, that leave us alone for too long and we will instantly go back to that toxic shame and guilt and feel like we don't know if God will love us. And so we begin to manufacture all of these ideas and all of these ways that we could possibly get God to love us. And we literally start tallying up the good and the bad in our lives. And what does that do to a person? Ultimately, what does that do when you allow that to reign in your life? It takes, it steals from you. It steals your life. It can destroy your relationships because one of two things is gonna happen for you. One, you're gonna measure your morality against the people around you and you're gonna start to feel superior to them. I never messed up like them or even I did mess up but look at how much better I recovered than they did. And you begin to feel a little bit superior to that person. When we look, let's just look, let's just think about this, this group of, of, of Jews here that have come out of their religious world. If we were to read the previous chapter in John, John 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. He gives his sight back. The end result of this is the Pharisees come to investigate what's going on. They're asking this man and his parents questions. And the man just says like, this dude has to be from God. He gave me sight. Who could give sight if they weren't from God? And because the Pharisees did not believe this very same thing, they cast him out. They, they banned him permanently from synagogue. These, these are the types of um, religious alternatives that Jesus is applying this title of thief or robber to. That because of the way our hearts are designed, that any religion that a man could devise will ultimately lead to separation, to destruction, from things being taken away from that person. And many would say, well, Jamin, that's, that's all good and well, but Christianity is the, the exact same way. It's all about who's in and who's out. Even in this very passage, the metaphor is about sheep in the gate going through by the door. This is an exclusive thing. This is a, this is a club that somehow you're claiming, that Jesus is claiming that this is the only way, that he is in fact the door. I just wanna offer you something to think about in, in terms of how we see Christianity played out in the world and this idea that Jesus, that, because the idea here is that 
Jesus is saying he is the door and we just got to listen and go through it, right? As opposed to our religious factory, our, our heart that wants to develop ways for us to make that passageway through our morality, through our penance, through whatever it is that we devise. And so particular religions have sprouted up in, in different places over the thousands of years that humanity is, has been on the earth. And when we look at them, let's say Islam, it's a whole lot of Muslims. But when we look at where the vast majority of Muslims are, they're all concentrated in one part of the world. Or if we look at Hinduism, when we look at those who claim their religion as Hinduism, they're all as well the vast majority in one particular part of the world. Hinduism believes in a plurality of gods. You could throw Jesus in there. Some do. Islam believes in a single god, Allah, and that your morality is what defines whether you make it or not, whether you have eternal existence in paradise or punishment. These two religions, they mostly kind of stayed in the area of the world in which they were developed. Hinduism, I'd say, is on surface much less exclusive of a, of a way to God than Christianity. And yet when we look at the traveling stamp uh, passport of the religious face, faith, it dances all over the earth. It dances to every part of the globe. There are even several peoples in the world who have been extremely oppressed by those colonized, subjugated by those who claim to bring Christ, that somehow, someway, they, when that subjugation was over, something still remained. A belief that Jesus was the door, that he was the way. And so when we think about this exclusivity of Jesus, that he claims he is the door, there's something that we can keep in mind, that we can find comfort from. And if you're a skeptic here this morning, or your faith is wavering or staggering, something to consider. Jesus is claiming here that a good shepherd, he's ta he, he talks about um, that, that wording is confusing there. In the first seven verses, he's, he's saying there is a shepherd that will lead to him, that door, and that what you have to do is be willing to go through it, to listen to his voice. That's all. You don't have to make it. You don't have to be good enough. And in fact, you can't be. So in that way, our faith is extremely exclusive because it says you, your morality, it can never be good enough. You won't make it any other way. And anybody that tries to convince you that you can is stealing from you 
is bringing death and destruction to you ultimately, even if their intention isn't that. That is, it's such a harsh word. It's such a difficult thing to say, but I've lived at different points in my life under that crushing weight of religion. And many of you here have as well, even under the guise of the very faith that Jesus brought to us. But what happens is life is stolen from us, and it leads to a rigor mortis of the soul when we live that way. And Jesus said, I've got to come. I've got to do it. You can't do it. Let's look in the, in the bulletin here. There's a quote there from a pastor named Erwin McManus. And he says this in a compelling way. He says, why does Jesus say he's the only way? He's not giving you the bad news from his perspective. He's giving you the bad news from reality. No one else is coming for you. There is no other God who loves you and passionately pursues you and longs to forgive you of your sin and heal you from your brokenness. So choose life because Jesus is your life. It's not that there's all these different possible ways for us to make it. It's that Jesus just gives us the only door. There was no door. So he brings it to us and it incarnates and embodies that way. Man could never imagine such a thing. Nothing that was possible could save us, could save you, could save me. So in that way, there is an exclusivity to our faith. It's hard to believe that sometimes. It could be hard for you to believe on a mental level, like I don't trust this document, I don't trust the writer, I don't trust that Jesus is who he says he was, but it can also be hard on a heart level because so many of us have for so long just had that self-flagellating whip on our back that we're just not good enough, that somehow, some way that you, as opposed to everyone else, isn't worth God's grace. Anybody ever felt that way? You ever felt like, yes, those words are true of somebody else, but not of me? And we have to ask ourselves in those places, in those times, is whose voice are we listening to? And whose voices should we be believing? In this passage, we hear a lot about Jesus calling or the shepherd calling out to the sheep and leading them. In fact, an interesting tidbit about that is uh, our Western minds, if you think about somebody herding sheep, what do they usually have with them? Another furry animal. A dog, right? Like a sheep dog. And the shepherd uses the sheep and he, and he drives the sheep forward. And he uses the little dog, runs around. A lot of times it's a blue healer. I don't know why I know that. I talked to you about parrots last time I was up here. Now I'm talking to you about dog breeds. All right. Um, 
So this blue healer and this shepherd, they're, they're leading the sheep, driving them to the pen. But that's, a, that's the way a Western sheep herder works. But if you came from the Near East where Jesus is from, then and today, a shepherd doesn't lead sheep that way. A shepherd walks in front of his sheep and he talks to them and they actually know his voice and so they follow him. They follow after him. They trust the voice of the shepherd. Whose voice are you trusting right now in your life? You know, a lot of people they capitalize on, on this idea, this believability, this if you, if you tag Jesus on it, then somebody will believe it. You ever, remember, anybody remember those, um, those uh, billboards? And they, they were black and they had white text on them. And it would say something like, stop killing each other, God. You, you ever seen those, seen those things? And I'm like, man. Somebody's got some cojones up there just like attributing various things. Yeah, I know that come, that one, that one in particular comes from, you know, one of the commandments and everything, one of the Ten Commandments. But, there's, but people do this all the time. Uh, TV preachers do this. Not TV preachers do this. They say whatever they want to say, and then they tag Jesus on there. And, and a lot of times it feels, it feels good to us. It feels good so we don't think to challenge that, to think, well, maybe that isn't Jesus just because that person who's supposed to be my shepherd said it was Jesus. It might be appealing to some other part of us. It might be appealing to that toxic shame, that, that place of where religion grows and dwells and continues to fester. So I'm going to keep asking us that question for the next 15 minutes is whose voice are you listening to? And is it believable? So we've got some exclusivity we've been dealing with. We're going to move into this realm of believability. Let's look back at those verses in verse 3 and 4 about voice and whose voice are we following. To him, in verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. If I can move a few inches up from the heart to the head, and we continue to discuss this idea of, of belief in, and believing uh, different voices, I want to suggest some of the voices that are prominent in our, in, in our particular context here that might crowd out or be confused with Jesus at times. There's uh, political voices. That's a strong one for us. And we want to be a church where people of all different political persuasions can come under the same roof and worship the same God. Does that sound exclusive to you? What would make that possible? What is making that possible more and more here? It's a voice that's greater and stronger 
than those other political voices that we believe, those other ideologies about the best way for things to be carried out. Because Jesus said that he came that we might have life and life abundantly. And he also claims he's the only one who can make good on that promise. There's nobody else. If they tell you that, they're a liar. They're a thief. They want to take something from you whether they know it or not. And so that's going to be one of the most important things that we as a congregation continue to strive for and do together is that these voices, namely political and ideological, become less than the voice of our good shepherd. Can I get an amen from that from somebody? We are called to do that, I believe, and our other leaders believe, that we can live in that tension because there is something greater than that tension. There is a shepherd whose voice is louder and clear, if we will let it be. The young practicing theologian, Matthew Burdett, he has something to say about this idea, and I believe we have that quote on the screen, starts with one of, one of the most severe problems of our time is that Christians are more thoroughly catechized as Americans or Democrats or capitalists than they are as Christians. Consequently, when it is time for the church to speak to society, the church members very often cannot discern the difference between the church's message and that of some other community. This is our problem now today. This has been the church's problem almost since its inception. Is, oh, we love what Jesus has to say. Life and life abundantly. Now let's cram him into the pre-existing boxes of how we see the world and what we think about, about how life as we already know it should be. But our challenge, our challenge, church, is to hear the voice of our good shepherd above all of that noise and all of that static and seek to follow him. And we're going to drift off to the left and the right sometimes. And he's going to have to bring us back in gently and kindly as he does. This metaphor at some point breaks down because the writer John is saying that his sheep know his voice and they listen to him. But I see a lot of Jesus' sheep here and I'm one of them and I don't always listen. Just like if Phoebe doesn't listen to her dad, that doesn't mean she's not his daughter, right? So we want to listen to the voice of Christ. We want to be able to weed out those confusing things that clamor for our attention and that we and that you all, your job and my job when I'm sitting there as well is to discern the difference. Whose voice are we listening to? Is it a politicized Jesus? Is it an ideological? Are we putting words in Jesus' mouth? So let me illustrate this in a different point. The book of John was written 85 to 90 AD, and Jesus died 
in 30 to 33 AD. And, and that means there was a long time that passed before uh, this book uh, was penned. And so uh, modern critics of this scripture, they, they would bring all these volleys to this book of the Bible, this, this gospel. They would say, well, if we look at the other gospels, if we look at Matthew and Mark and Luke, who were written earlier, closer to the death of Jesus, they would say that it is not clear that Jesus is claiming divinity in these books, that in fact he's simp- he is claiming to be the Messiah, but not that he has equality with God. And this series we're in is about the divinity of Christ, the I am statements. So we're talking about how Jesus says, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. And they would say that over time, in between the death of Jesus and, and John's penning of this work, that there was a fabrication that took place where Jesus was elevated from just a good religious teacher and maybe even the the true Jewish Messiah that came into God. How you feel when you hear that? This is modern scholarship. They're talking about these things all the time. But the interesting thing, there's, there's of course, uh, uh, lots of amazing apologetics, with, which means that, uh, defending of, of the faith, of the divinity of Christ, and the doctrines that we hold dear in the creeds. Um, but one point I want to make apologetically about this that relates to this idea of believability and the voices that we are listening to is that what we don't find in John's gospel We don't find any answers about the common problems that Christians, the new baby Christians of the world, those Jews that were now confessing Christ, faced. Like, there's nothing in here. Jesus never says anything about circumcision that um, if you become a Christian but you're not a Jew, that you're a Gentile, that you got to be circumcised or that you don't got to be circumcised. And some of you are like, dude, I'm falling asleep just hearing you say that word right now. That has nothing to do with anything to do with me. But it does. Because if it was true that John was simply trying to fabricate something here, then why would he not take the time and the energy to include some of those things? Some of the greatest controversies of the early church that threatened its total destruction that he would just leave out. If he's just making stuff up, why not make up that as well? How that connects to us, apologetically it connects. It's one of many reasons that I would say John is reliable, and I'll share another one with you in a moment. But um, how it connects to us is that Jesus, if this is true, if these writings are true, and I believe that they are, there's a whole lot of stuff that we argue over that he didn't think was important to mention. What does that mean for us, for for this community right here? Can we listen to the voice of Jesus over these other voices? That's the question. That's what this church can offer to this world, to, to our city. Will we rise to the challenge? Will we believe that good shepherd? I believe that we will. Because I know too many of you 
And I know that you've allowed yourself into that abundant life. We got to keep remembering. We got to keep believing in the voice of the shepherd as the world spins in and out of chaos all around us. There were a few other um, points that I wanted to talk about with the book of John, but I'm not going to. If you want to hear some more of those things, um, you, can, you can get with me later. All right, I'm going to share one more. So uh, going back to this idea of, of the myth of the divinity of Christ and the distance in between John writing and the death of Jesus that you have 50 to 60 years distance. Um, that's not long enough for a myth to evolve about somebody's identity. It's just not. Myths take hundreds of years to develop. Um, that's common scholarly knowledge. Not only that, but if we look at an earlier book uh, that Paul wrote in the epistle uh, Philippians, we read in verse or chapter two of Philippians, Jesus said, or Paul says that um, when it all goes down, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, God. So we have evidence as early as 15 to 20 years that Christians were worshiping Jesus as God without any sort of contest about that scholarly. So there's a little bit of that, that side of the believability for you. Let's end with a little bit of comfort that Jesus offers us in this passage. We've talked about the exclusivity of this claim that Jesus is the door and why we needed a door. We've talked about the believability of these claims and the necessity of our church in particular to be able to believe the voice of Jesus and to distinguish his voice from the other voices. The comfort that comes with that is astounding. It's easy to get caught up in the beginning of this passage, but um, towards the end here of this passage of Scripture, in verse 16 and 17 of John 10, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Let's read that passage together. In verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is about bringing things together, not separating us into all of these little categories. Most definitely, Jesus was referring to the Jewish people as his main flock and then non-Jews as other sheep that he was bringing in 
Because Jesus knew something. He knew that his message would be so beautiful and so attractive to people who had been told all their lives, you will never be good enough or you were already born good enough because of your class or your position in society, but inside they knew that it wasn't true. And so he was able to say this. I have other sheep that they're not here. This is so different from the other things that uh, the other religious sources and what they claim so often. Jesus tells stories like this. There's a shepherd with 99 sheep, and just one of those sheep goes missing. And that good shepherd, he goes out to find that sheep. Just that one he's going after. There might be somebody here who you've been grazing on pastures of green grace being around us here at at Christ City Church. And maybe you're not looking over the fence at Christianity, but maybe you are standing at the gate and you're wondering, is there abundant life there for me? Is there really not another way? There are so many other convincing and compelling ideas about what abundant life looks like. And Jesus answers that question. He answers it in this very passage we are looking at. He says this, verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life. I lay it down. There is nobody else who's going to do that for you. When the chips are down, when your sins are weighted up against you, There's nobody else coming for you other than Jesus. So you can think about that in one of two ways. You can think about it as being exclusive, that Jesus says he's the only way, or you can think about where is the other good shepherd? Where is the one who says that he can take the burden of my sin on him and that he will lay down his very life for me? That's the kind of shepherd, that's the kind of God that Jesus claims to be. There's um, an American poet that talked about this incredible idea that God could become man and save us. It's a three-line poem, and I'm going to end with that, by W.H. Auden. He says, how could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? Nothing can save us that is possible. That's why Jesus says he's the door. Anything we can come up with can't save us.